copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 1 and 2. And this message is really a continuation. Uh, a few weeks back, we talked about, began talking about the process of spiritual growth and, and basically took a whole sermon just to say it is a process. It's not something where God zaps you and makes you instantly a mature Christian. It's not something that automatically happens at some steady pace, but that we cooperate with Christ. But, you know, if we were to look at a graph of our spiritual growth, there'd be all sorts of ups and downs because sometimes we're cooperating and working with the Lord and sometimes not so much. But we really spent a whole sermon just saying, this is a process. And, and lots of times we get frustrated because we're not as mature, we're not as spiritual as we want to be, but we're... Uh, we're encouraged by God's word to understand that we're not perfect yet. We have not uh, been completed and perfected. We have not been glorified as we will be in heaven. And so it's a process that we take part in. And then the next message, we talked about the number one thing, and, and this will kind of just continue as long as I'm preaching these series. They're not really in order, but I will say uh, that one is kind of a number one and a, and a always thing to focus on, and that's just staring at Jesus. We, we called that staring at Jesus. We said the number one thing that we can do is to develop a relationship that is so close with Christ where we don't get distracted, but we're constantly looking at him. We're fixing our eyes on him, as the book of Hebrews says. We are focusing on Jesus and not getting distracted by the things of this world. And so uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about how we behold as in a mirror the glory of God and we are transformed from glory to glory. In other words, we look at the image of Christ, what we know of him, and we just become more and more. God takes us from one level in him to another level to another level. And just by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, uh, we grow. This morning we're continuing this this thought, this series, these, uh, this idea of spiritual growth. And um, we're going to just read these verses 12, 1, and 2. But I want to kind of give you a background here. Um, every single book that Paul writes, he has this a split in his books between doctrine or theology, you might say, and practical Christian living. In every book he writes, now, there's a mix of some practical stuff in the beginning of his letters, and, and yes, you'll still find some theology in the end of his letters, but basically what he usually does, he builds up a case for what he's trying to teach the people about. Here's the, the theoretical background, or here's the beliefs that you need to understand about God and about your condition. And then he, at some point, says, therefore live this way. And he makes a shift and says, here's how you're to talk. Here's how you're to walk. Here's how you're to live and believe. But all those things are meaningless without understanding the groundwork that he puts down at first. And a lot of times uh, he does, takes about half of his letters doing that. You read a book that's got six chapters, Paul's probably going on laying the found work, foundation, the groundwork for about three chapters, and then he'll kind of go on for another three chapters about here's how that looks like in a Christian's life. 
Well, Romans is known as the most theology-heavy book uh, of the New Testament, perhaps of the Bible. And so he actually goes more than half of the book. Romans has 16 chapters, and Paul goes on for 11 chapters of theology. And it's intense, it's deep, it's the stuff theologians still debate and try to figure out. But we, although they might be arguing over the finer points, we get the big picture. And the big picture of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11 is this. We're messed up, big time. We have a problem called sin, and it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, uh, your color of your skin, your ethnicity, whether you're a man or you're a woman. All of us, the Bible says in Romans, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the mark of God's standard, and none of us have been able to live up to his standards. And so that whole first 11 chapters is basically convincing us that without God, we're messed up. We've lost it. We have no chance. But God's mercy and graciousness and kindness is so great to us that because of what he did through his son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for us, we can have a relationship with God. So that is, that's all of, of what those first 11 chapters is reminding us of all the amazing mercy, grace, and blessings that, that um, God has given us. So he gets to the end of chapter 11, and he's starting to get riled up now. <laughs> he, he's starting to get going. I mean, for us, it's kind of, most of us, I can only compare it to like a football game. Maybe things aren't going so well, and you're kind of sitting there, and then all of a sudden you see a receiver break out, and he's, he's free from the coverage, and, and you see the quarterback seize him, and he throws it, and you start to get up a little bit, and it's going right for him, and, and then he catches that ball, and, and, and you're jumping up, and, and then it's the 30, the 20, the 10, and you're, you're, you're getting riled up, and you're ready, and then, the, man, when he gets in that end zone, they could be someone you've never met in your life. All of a sudden, you're hugging them, you're high-fiving them. You are so pumped about what just happened. That's about how Paul felt at the end of chapter 11. He ends that whole thing on theology with this statement about how awesome God is and how amazing he is. And he even says he's so un his ways are so unsearchable. In other words, Paul is saying, God, you're so amazing. You blow my mind. I can't even understand you, but that's awesome. And so he, he just goes into this, not a rant, because rants are negative, but his thing is just like, wow, God, you're amazing. You've blessed us in amazing ways. And then we come to this passage that we're going to look at this morning. So stand with me, please, in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word as we read Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, and I'm reading from the uh, New King James Version this morning. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to understand these concepts of living sacrifice and of renewing our minds so that we can grow in you, that we can become more like Jesus, that we can draw closer into relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So Paul says, I urge you. This old Bible word, I beseech you. I implore you. I beg you to think about all of the mercies that God has shared with you, all of the amazing blessings that he's given. And because of that, this is how you should live. I want you to understand that the Bible gives plenty of motivation for living the Christian life. And there is more than one motivation. I mean, number one, you know, being in God's favor, that's a great thing. Uh, Number two, uh, actually being a Christian and going to heaven and not hell, that's a pretty good thing. Uh, He tells us uh, that, that if we walk with him, we'll be blessed. That's a great thing. He talks about rewards for those who faithfully live for Jesus. That one day, some of them we receive in this life, but a lot of them are when we stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, and he evaluates the works that we've done. We're not talking about unbelievers, talking about believers who are going to heaven, but we stand before Christ and he evaluates our work on this earth and he hands out honor and distinctions and rewards to those who have faithfully served him and those rewards are with us through eternity. So those are all awesome reasons to serve God. But I want you to understand that the primary motivation that the Bible uh, talks about more than any other motivation for serving God is gratitude. The primary motivation is that if we have a brain at all, if we have any kind of sensitivity to how much has been done for us, then we should be amazingly grateful to God. He took us, wretched sinners, unable to be good enough, unable to to even approach his standards of goodness. And he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And he gave him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin, that is, bear all of our sins on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God. God looks at us and sees us covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are right in his sight because of that. And Paul's saying, I beseech you, I urge you, I implore you, I beg you, whatever language you want to use, Think about what God has done for you. And if you have half a brain, and if you're not the most selfish person in the world, when you think about what God has done for you, you ought to want to do everything for him. Now, what is that everything for him? If I really get how much God has done for me and really want to live out a life of gratitude toward him, what should I do? He uses this language. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This word here for present, it was a religious word. It meant presenting an offering to the priest to be sacrificed in the temple. We're kind of squeamish these days, or a lot of us are. You know, my mom talks about growing up, and when it was time to eat, her mother would say, go out and grab one of those chickens and, you know, wring its neck and bring it in. I'm like, don't even give me a raw chicken that I have to take apart. I buy my chicken in fillets, preferably breaded, okay? I, I don't like to deal with stuff. If I go fishing and you happen to say, would you, would you like me to clean this fish? Yes, yes, yes. You go ahead and clean the fish for me. I enjoy the fishing part. I mean, I'm kind of squeamish, but, you know, back in the day, to be a religious person, uh, you couldn't be all that squeamish because what you did was brought a pure and unblemished animal, a, a lamb or a goat or whatever it was. And this was not the one that was cross-eyed, and this was not the one that, had, that was crippled or anything like that. You had to bring the best, the most valuable that you had, and you would lay it there on the altar before the priest. And it would be sacrificed. It would be slaughtered right there in front of you. You watched as this animal that you raised was slaughtered, put into parts, and some would go to the priest, and some would be burnt and offered up to the Lord. And so that was a dead sacrifice. You brought it, and it was living, but then once you gave it, it was killed, and, and, and there it went. That was the sacrifice, all right? But when Jesus came, he was the ultimate sacrifice. He laid down not an animal, but himself on the cross for us. And so the altar terminology that forever changed from Christians. When I was growing up, I'd hear kids, I mean, as a kid, I would hear preachers talk about come to the altar and, and and confess your sins or, or make this decision for God. And I was so confused. I didn't know what the altar was. Quite frankly, I thought it was this thing right here. I mean, that's, that's kind of big, and the preacher's usually right here talking about this. So I thought that that big table at the front, I thought that was the altar, and it was actually kind of scary to me because, I don't know, it had words engraved on it. It was a very different kind of table, and it wasn't for a long, long time that I realized, no, that's not the altar. That's... This is the fellowship table of the Lord. It says, this do in remembrance of me across the front of it because it's talking about the communion that we share with Christ. That's not the altar. The altar for Christians is the cross. Because instead of bringing our sacrifice to a stone altar where it's going to be cut up and chopped up and and cooked up. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Old Testament altar, New Testament cross. Now this is very interesting. We've gone from taking an animal that was never 
An animal never forgave any one of their sins. It was a picture to those people of a permanent and perfect sacrifice that would forgive their sins. And Christ was that permanent and perfect sacrifice. So no longer does any sacrifice have to be made for the forgiveness of sins. Rather, a sacrifice is made to worship God. We come, and the Bible says we take up our cross, and one of the Gospels adds that word daily. Now, why is it that we have to take up our cross daily? Guess what? If you put a dead animal up on the altar, it's staying there, right? It's not going to crawl off. It's not going to go anywhere. But I guarantee you, if you put a live animal up there, and it gets to looking around and seeing what's happening to all the other animals, it's going to scoot. It's going to run as fast as it can and get out of there. And you know our problem as Christians? We can come to Jesus during a revival or an emotional time or whatever, and we can say, all to Jesus I surrender. And we can lay ourselves on that altar. But when we start to get distracted... (laughs) We kind of crawl off of that altar. We kind of ease away and say, I don't know about this complete surrender to Jesus stuff. And he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, it's a, not a one-time thing. He's talking to people who are already saved, who are already Christians. He's not telling them, oh, get saved. He's saying, you people who are already in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've already come to Jesus, you've come to the cross for forgiveness, guess what? Every single day of your life, you need to come back to God and say, God, it's another day, and here I am again, I am yours. I take up my cross. That means I die to the sinful, selfish ways of the old nature. All the bad stuff that's not of God within me, I am dying to that, and God, I am living for you. That's what we're supposed to do. If we want to grow in Christ, it's not, there's no checklist Christianity where it's like, oh, say your prayers, check, go to church, check, give your tithe, check, oh, now you're a great great Christian, because you've done those few things. No, those little things and everything else are part of your body being sacrificed to God as a living sacrifice. We think it's great when someone spends their life for someone else, a, a hero, you know, a lot of times those people will say, I didn't even think about it. I just did it in the situation. And while it's tremendously brave for heroes to die for people, what's harder really over time is to consistently live for someone. And that's what an ongoing sacrifice of our bodies is. It's saying, God, whatever I am is yours. It's not just, oh, that I believe in Jesus. It's that I'm going to live my body In this world, with my money, with my time, with my talents, with my personality, everything about me, I'm going to try to live a life that is pure and righteous and holy and unselfish and helps the poor and and, and looks for justice and does what's right 
when everybody else is doing what's wrong. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The Greek word behind our English word reasonable there is logikos. It's the word which we get the word logical from. And in other words, Paul's saying, if you really get how good God is and what he's done for you, it's not some crazy leap to make yourself a sacrifice. It's actually the rational, logical thing that you should do. And you will understand this if you really know how much God has done for you. You'll say, how can I do anything else but serve God? He gave his all for me on Calvary. He sustains me every breath he gives me. He created me. He redeemed me. He sustains me. What else can I do but give my everything to him? And then he goes on in verse 2 and says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Any of you uh, ever, probably not, I'm probably the only one, but any of you ever have any problems with this thing? Or maybe with your computer or, you know, technology. We keep getting new technology, but we, we always have problems. I mean, you know, I remember back in the day, mom would say, now, how do you work this VCR? You know, I don't have to show her how to work a VCR anymore. I'm kind of, we're beyond that. But a lot of us just left that time blinking on the VCR because we never could even figure out how to set it. We just, you know, did the basics, put in a tape that we rented, and that's about all we knew to do. And you know, we get problems. Computers are supposed to make things easier, and yet I have gotten some of the most frustrated and wasted so much time in my life over a phone or a computer that was messed up. And, you know, you're trying to figure out, and you, you know, we all have this phobia about being, well, I say all of us. If you're, I don't know, under 25, you probably don't have this. You got it. But if you're older, you have this phobia of being like, I'm, I look really bad if I don't if I have to ask somebody else. I'm going to kind of figure this out myself, and I don't want to look dumb. And so you, you start trying to do things and figure out how to do it. And, and then finally you break down and ask someone, and they'll, you know, you've tried everything, and they're like, oh, well, have you tried turning it off? You know? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> have you tried rebooting it? <sighs> no. And then magically, after all these hours of work, it, it comes back and it's just perfect for them on the first try, right? Well, God is saying here that we kind of need a reboot in our mind. He says two things here. Do not be conformed to this world. And this is a passive sort of verse. He's not saying that you and I have to actively go out and say, I want to be like the world. I want to do all the stuff the devil wants me to do. I want to, I want to do bad stuff. No, he's saying, look, if you're just passive, if you just float along in life, the world has this mold that it's going to stamp you into. It's going to squish you in. It's going to fit you in its box. And it's going to make you do what everybody else is doing. And you look like everybody else. And you're politically correct or you're impolitically correct like the other group of people. But you say and you think just like everybody else around you does. And, and that's the perfect little mold. 
Any of y'all ever made anything in molds before? You know, maybe some of you cake molds. I grew up on an old farm, lots of old stuff uh, around. And really cool thing is we had little um, lead soldier molds. And you could pour into them and, and, and you could make soldiers like that plastic little green army men now. But these were lead. As I got older, I realized that was bad for you, and that probably explains a lot of things that I play with lead as a child, okay? But I understand from that molding that you pour stuff in there, and it makes it exactly what you want it to make. It doesn't come out in any other image than that mold. And God's Word is saying you're going to be just like the world wants you to be. If you don't actively do something different, you don't have to say, I want to be like the world. You just automatically, passively get pressed in to the world's way of doing things. So he says, do not do that. In other words, we got to make a decision that we are actively going to resist being pressed into and being stamped into the world's mold for us. But instead... We are to renew our minds. We are to be transformed by our minds constantly being upgraded. Like the computer that needs to be rebooted, like the updates that need to be installed, our minds are constantly just, they kind of drift, you know? We leak the goodness, the filled with the spiritness, the all the wanting to serve Jesusness, all that stuff somehow, and just like a computer, little errors will creep in, our minds kind of start to drift automatically. We start to go back to the old ways of thinking, what the world has called us to. And he says, instead of being conformed, put into this little jello mold and looking like everybody else in the world. You need to be transformed so that your mind is just renewed constantly. And by renewing your mind, you'll be transformed to be like God. That word that's translated there, transformed, is used one other time in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels, and there it's translated differently. It's translated transfigured. Some of you may know the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. It's where Jesus went up and God's glory began to be revealed in him. A brightness and his clothes turned to white and the glory of God was coming off of him. So while conforming is being fake, being changed to look like everybody else, but not being true, not being genuine, not having integrity to your real self. That's what conforming is. Transforming is growing into who you really are and showing your true nature. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and the apostles saw him all of a sudden just glowing brightly and his clothes changing, they were getting just a little glimpse. They didn't get the whole thing. If they got the whole thing, they couldn't have taken it all, the glory of God. Nobody can. In this life, but they got a glimpse of the glory of God, of Jesus as he really was. And so the idea for us of being transformed is not that we put on a show and act more religious and, and wear clothes or say certain words or talk away or whatever that people think we're religious. We're actually, God's saying, become who you really are. I've already redeemed your spirit, your inmost being. I have saved it. 
but yet you still live in this body and you're still not perfect yet, but you can make progress toward catching up that spirit that I've redeemed within you. It should be affecting your outer life more and more and more. And you're becoming more like the Jesus follower that I have made you to be. So how do we do this renewing of our minds? We simply reboot by getting in touch with God on a daily basis. What am I going to do? What is my first priority in the morning? Now, some of you, this gets tricky, I understand. Some of you say, well, I get up to do my devotion, and then the dogs wake up, and then i got to take them out to go, and i got to clean up their messes, and then the baby starts crying, and... Look, this isn't easy. If it was easy, all of us would do it. But we have to work and plan and prioritize that somewhere in our day, rather than reading the news or watching Netflix or doing whatever else we're doing, that we say, I'm going to intentionally cut something else out so I'll intentionally go to bed a little bit earlier so that I can get up a little bit earlier so I can spend time with Jesus. I read his word and I pray to him. And going back to that staring at Jesus thing, the more time I spend with Jesus, the more like Jesus I become. That affects my beliefs and that affects my behavior and it affects my very character. I don't just become more religious. I actually become more Christ-like. I grow in him. So I want to encourage you today. Understand that living for Christ is not just a little thing that you add to all your other stuff, your career, your marriage, your family, your hobbies. No, Christ is your life. And so he has control. It's not to say that you don't have those things. Yeah, you still have a career and family and hobbies and all that. But he's in absolute control. And so I begin each day going to this altar. I begin each day looking at Christ and thinking about what he did for me on the cross. And I say, God, I'll take up my cross for you today. Just like you denied yourself, you didn't take the easy way out. But you took up your cross and died for me. Today, I'm going to choose again to die to the old, sinful, fleshly way of life. And you offer yourself up to God on that altar as a living sacrifice. And you keep renewing your mind so that you don't crawl off that altar so that you stay focused, that you're reminded of the things you already knew, and that you learn even new things about God, and you grow in the richness, richness of relationship to him. Christianity was never meant to be some one-time decision that only affected an hour or two of your week every day, every week on Sunday. It was meant to be a surrender to God. Not that your surrender saved you, okay? You couldn't do anything to save you, but you simply accepted the free gift of God. 
But once you've received that gift, Paul says, man, if you're not just super selfish, if you're reasonable, if you're a logical, clear-thinking person at all, when you think about all that God has done for you, then you're going to realize that the natural, normal thing you ought to do is give your everything to him. Be a living sacrifice. And be transformed by renewing your mind by daily walking with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you've called us to nothing less than absolute transformation. Lord, you've never told us to straighten up, to turn over a new leaf, to act a little nicer or better or more religious or more socially acceptable. God, you didn't ask any of those things of us. You've asked that we recognize and be grateful for all you've done and that in response, as you've done everything for us, that we give back our lives to you. We sacrifice ourselves. And in that process, when we're not seeking to save our lives, but rather to give them away, God, you tell us that we actually gain our lives and that we achieve joy and blessing and fulfillment that we would never achieve if we were selfishly seeking our way. I pray today that we would get it, that it would become logical and reasonable, that we would not just think that total surrender is reserved for somebody who goes off as a missionary to Africa, but God, you've called those of us right here in Mississippi and Alabama that we, as we live our ordinary lives as as teachers and preachers and mechanics and factory workers and retirees and school children, that whoever we are, God, you've called us to give our lives to you as living sacrifices. God, break through our hard-heartedness. Help us to be grateful for all you've done to give our lives as a living sacrifice. Father, bless this time now where we have an opportunity to respond to you. Work in us and help us to really listen and to really obey and to heed your calling. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.